for joining us. You're listening to a Saturday edition of Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Get past your pride. Get past your pride. Let's pray. Almighty God, as I speak the word you've put on my heart, would you carry us past our pride? Lord, move today with power among us. Reshape, remold, break down the wall. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. This issue of pride is so difficult to get beyond. There's there's an issue that is so hard to get past, and that's our pride. It's reflected in all of how we live, what we think about, where we go, how we walk. It's reflected in our facial expression. It's reflected in our decisions and our choices. It's kissing cousins with self-love, except pride is that outward manifestation of self-love. And it was considered a vice for many years by Christians. But today it's considered a virtue. We have to come back to recognize that it's not a virtue. It's a vice. I've watched with interest over the years a Presbyterian church called Hollywood Press. It's the church that Bill Bright came out of. It's the church that impacted deeply Billy Graham. Henrietta Mears was a Bible teacher at this this church. Billy Graham was discouraged and ready to give up his ministry. And he came one afternoon to this church, and he and Bill Bright and a couple of others asked Henrietta Mears if she would pray all night with them. They had to get a breakthrough. And that night they prayed through the hours of that darkness. And suddenly the presence of God filled the room where they were praying. Bill Bright later said he never experienced anything like it. It was the infilling of the Holy Spirit into his life. It put Billy Graham back on the road as an evangelist. Lives were touched that night. This all happened at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And then a friend of mine from Pennsylvania went to Hollywood Press as the senior pastor. So I continued watching this church. And then he accepted another assignment and a new pastor came. And through the years, this congregation slowly had dwindled. It was dying in size. It was a megachurch that was dying. The new pastor came and and he said, look, what we have to do is become relevant. We're not meeting the culture. And so in a planning committee, they came up with the idea of going to a nightclub a short distance away from the Hollywood Presbyterian Church and offering there an urban experience of worship. And so everyone was invited to come in t-shirts and jeans. They had a rock band. And they began to do a worldly, seeker-sensitive church. And immediately it was very popular. 
They soon had 350 members attending this church. And then slowly a a change began to happen because people out of that urban experience began to come into Hollywood Presbyterian Church, which is the elite of the elites. And so now a class war broke out between the urban experience church and the Hollywood Press elite church. Last week they put their pastor on administrative leave. And the headquarters of the Presbyterian Church stepped in and took over the congregation. They're having meetings, five, six hundred people at a time, meeting to talk about how they don't like this pastor and what he's doing to their Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And of course, the pastor is saying, look, in the time I've been here, we've gained 750 members in this church. It's working. Let's keep doing it. Well, here's the problem. An urban experience over here, a traditional service over here, the traditionals don't like the urban experience, and the urban experience, they don't like the traditionals. How is this going to be brought together? I only know of one way. They're going to have to move beyond their pride. Some people take pride in showing up in church in jeans. Some people take pride in showing up in a suit. What's Jesus think? Jesus isn't going to show up in a suit because he wore a robe. He's not going to show up in jeans because he didn't wear jeans. So what's the answer? Well, here's my heart. I know that if Hollywood Presbyterian Church is going to prosper, they're going to have to go back to what this humble woman started many years ago, Henrietta Myers, or Mears. They're going to have to come back to what she was doing. They're going to have to get on their face and begin to pray all night. They're going to have to come back and find out what Jesus wants because it's his church, not their church. It doesn't matter what the urban experience people want. It doesn't matter what the traditionalists want. It matters what Jesus wants. So right now the church is being torn asunder. It's in the national news. The national news media is covering this catastrophic tearing that's going on in the Presbyterian church. And of course, the news media is writing this up as another event of progress in the Christian church as they struggle with the issues of how to be relevant to the culture. Well, that's not what the issue is. The issue is whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ will rule, or whether the traditionalists will rule, or the urban experienced people will rule. There is a battle going on in the church today, but the battle is not about humbling our hearts and repenting and seeking after Jesus. And that's what the battle has to become. That's where the focus is going to have to go. So when we come into this service today, I don't want my picture taken. Pastor, take my picture and put it on the very front. No. It's seeking after the heart and face of Jesus to say, how can I reflect Jesus Christ in the way I walk, in the way I talk? As I live, how do I reflect Jesus Christ? In the scripture, we have a story about a man by the name of Hezekiah. 
I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Hezekiah because he's only the backdrop for what the Lord wants me to talk to you about today. But very quickly, Hezekiah was a godly king. His father, a wicked man, caused Hezekiah to shun that kind of life and caused him to seek after the Lord with all of his heart and mind. He began the process that every revival must begin with. He began by tearing down the idols. He began by exposing the darkness. He began by confronting the wickedness. Made some people mad. He pushed on. He called for total revival. And finally the people began to follow. And revival broke out in the land of Judah. The services of the Lord God were reinstated. Men and women began to bring their offerings into the temple and offer them. And then the general population began to go out and search for altars and asterisk poles that they could tear down, cut up, and burn. Now, when that happens, you know revival's in the land. If it's just the preacher preaching, there's no revival. But if the people go home and begin to clean out their closets and pitch out their idols, and not only that, they start going to their kids' houses, and they start going to other people's houses, and they start tearing down all the idols in the land. You know, revivals birthed in the, in the land. That's revival. God blessed him because of this revival. Always God blesses when revival comes. He blesses financially. He blesses spiritually. He blesses in friendship and community. All the blessings of God are released by revival. And Hezekiah saw all this revival, and he said, this is wonderful. And he just enjoyed every moment of it. But as he was enjoying it, his heart began to grow proud. He got sick. He was about to die. The Lord wanted to take his life. He wanted to take his life out of the fullness of revival. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. And he wept before God and he said, am I going to be cut down just at the strength of my life? Am I going to be cut down now? Look how I've served you. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah who was leaving. He said, go back and tell him, I've heard the prayer. I'm going to give you 15 more years of life. Honor had been heaped on him. His heart was proud arrogance, the wrath of God began to fall on him. The blessings began to be withdrawn. Hezekiah repented. He said, I'm sorry. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to be arrogant. And so the Lord sent emissaries from Babylon. And the scriptures say, that the Lord withdrew from him in order to test him. Second Chronicles 32, look at this, verse 31. But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left 
him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. God left him to see what was in his heart. Now, I want to tell you today, God has left some of you in this congregation to test you, to see what's in your heart. It's one of his, his ways. He withdraws. He is silent. He stops speaking, not because you're walking in sin, but because he wants to test your heart. He wants to know what is inside of you. Now listen, this always comes after a time of repentance. It always comes after we think we've walked with the Lord and we've been honest with him. And now he comes to test us, to expose whatever is left in our hearts. So today, if your sense is God isn't speaking to you, it may not be at all because you've sinned against him. It may just be he wants to know what you're going to do next. Will you go out on your own and begin to create what you want? Are you walking in arrogance before him? He wants that arrogance to be exposed. Now, what did he do? The Babylonian envoys came. Come on in. Your family showed him everything he had. He showed that in his heart, in spite of his repentance, he still carried pride. And in that pride... Isaiah comes, and in 2 Kings 20, verse 16, he said to Hezekiah, 2 Kings 20, verse 16, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, that will be born to you. They will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah says, the word the Lord has spoken is good. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? When it was Hezekiah's life that was at stake, he could weep and he could cry. But when it was his whole nation at stake, he had no heart for intercession. All he could do is say, thank you that I'm going to be comfortable. Just keep me comfortable, God. God withdraws from us to expose our hearts so that we'll see the truth of our lie, so that we'll see the truth of our lie. That our pride has risen up and it is taking over our life. Now Hezekiah dies and his son Manasseh takes the throne. And Manasseh is 12 years of age. Now why is that important? That means that three years into the gift of 15, Manasseh is born. Manasseh, the child of God's faithfulness, is wicked. Had Hezekiah simply released his life into the hand of God, he would have gone into eternity as the king who had 
defeated by the power of faith the entire army of Sennacherib. He would have gone into heaven with hands lifted up, praising the name of the Almighty God. But instead, he gave birth to Manasseh, the most wicked king that ever ruled Judah. Church historians tell us that it was probably Manasseh who put the prophet Isaiah in a log and sawed it in two. Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, the scriptures tell us. He sought after divination and witchcraft. He sought after the Baal gods. He did not follow in any respect the path of his father. But wait a minute. Didn't he follow the path of his father? The only difference was Manasseh was not double-minded. Are your children following your path? Are your children following your path? You want to say, my path is the path of righteousness. My path is the way of repentance. My path is the way of revival. But if there is an underbelly of pride in your heart and in your life, if there's an underbelly of rebellion against God, if there's an underbelly of wickedness in your spirit, your child will probably follow that path and not the path of righteousness. And of course, you know who your children are. Not just your flesh children, the children you're birthing in the workplace. The children you're birthing where you do your recreation. It's the influence you carry with you everywhere. Does your influence tend to be salt that preserves? Or does your influence tend to be sugar that rots and decays? What is your influence? in your neighborhood, in your, in your family, in your, your community. What is your influence? This man, Manasseh, was just being faithful to what he'd been taught by his daddy. And God had to step in. And oh, when God has to step in, it becomes very painful. Second Chronicles 33, verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them an army commanded of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God. In his distress... He sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord is God. Today, the concern of my heart is that every one of you in this room have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ time after time after time. You have heard the gospel preached in this place. You've heard the gospel preached in other places. 
There's not one of you in this room ignorant of the way of the cross. But is there an underbelly of wickedness that you have pampered and allowed to rule in your life so that if I look at you with a certain color of glasses, I see a religious life. But if I look with you through another pair of glasses, I see a Manasseh rebellion, pride, arrogance. It has to be my way. I have to be right. This is Manasseh. But let me tell you the tragedy today of Manasseh. Look in 2 Chronicles 33, beginning with verse 15. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the images from the temple of the Lord. In other words, he's starting to do the work of revival that his father Hezekiah had done. As well as all the altars he'd built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places but only to the Lord their God. What you're really hearing is the people said, okay, we'll go through the motions, but we're not interested in revival. We've seen you play the game, king. We don't want to get hooked. We're willing to come. We're willing to bring sacrifices and offerings. But on the side, we're going to have our little private gods. In other words, Manasseh's sin against God influenced the whole nation to be lukewarm and unavailable for God to bring revival. Now, we're in a hard place because you and I are in the same position. All my life, I've heard preachers say, let's stop doing business as normal. And let's seek God for revival. And then as a little boy, I watched them as they went out afterward with friends to eat. And I listened to their conversation and they never talked about Jesus there. They talked about the new car they bought and the good deal they got. They talked about what they were going to do that week. There was a lot of joking and laughing shallowness. And as a little boy, I would listen to this and I'd go home to my dad afterwards and I'd say, Daddy, does pastor so-and-so love Jesus? And my dad would say, Raymond, what makes you even ask that question? Well, I saw what he said at church, but I saw what he said this afternoon. I don't understand, Daddy. And my dad would very kindly say to me, Raymond, believe what you hear at church and don't look behind the screen. Because what's behind the screen is ugly. I remember as I was getting ready to go to seminary, dad sat down with me and he said to me, Ray, remember what I said to you when you were a child? 
You're going to go to seminary and you're going to see things that you don't like. Look beyond it to Jesus. In other words, I've been raised and you've been raised in a church atmosphere that said, go for God, go for God. And then everybody had the brakes on. Be serious about God, sell out for God. But over here on the side, I've got my deal going. And so I went to seminary. One of my best friends at seminary. He said, Ray, come on, let's do, the, let's do the real estate deals. We can leave seminary and be rich. He said, Daddy does it all the time. I said, your dad does real estate on the side? He said, of course he does. Well, that man was the one who laid hands on me in ordination for the gospel ministry. He was one of the top leaders in the denomination I was a part of. I couldn't believe my ears. The double play that was going on. I said, wait a minute, how can this happen? All of us have been so exposed to this kind of lie that our hearts have become calloused. And we're saying, why should we sell out when nobody else is selling out? Why should we be so serious about Jesus and walk this narrow path when everybody else is walking their broad path, but they've got Jesus? And in this church, why don't we have a nice orchestra playing up here? Why don't we have a nice band? Why can't we have some of the things that make church pleasant? (laughs) You know, why be so tough? Why be so disciplined? Pastor, why don't you just change your message a little bit? It'll still be the truth. You don't have to confront us this way. And some of you who've been with me, as long as you have been, still say, is Pastor Ray for real? Does he really mean this? Yes. I've heard you ask that question. Do we really have to get rid of the world? Do we have to give up our televisions? Do we have to give up our worldly pleasures? Do we have to give up the Redskins? Do we have to do that? Come on, pastor, get real. It's like, we want to go to heaven, but we live here now. Right? So we've got to get along here while we're on our way to heaven. And after all, Jesus may not come in our lifetime, So we've got to store up the retirement. We've got to do this and we've got to do that. We've got to be worldly. Come on, pastor. So it's almost as though you come into this fellowship and you listen with a jaded ear. Are you serious, pastor? Do we have to give up everything to follow Jesus? Do I have to give up my love of success at the job? Do I have to give up my love of being appreciated and cared about? Do I have to give up? Do I have to give up everything that is not of Jesus? Yes. 
know what the Lord keeps telling me? I'm not grading Christians on this generation of American Christians. Just got a phone call from our dear friend John Hall, Pastor John Hall in Ashland, Ohio. He'd been talking with one of the missions people that he stays close with. He said a compact has been drawn up by the underground church of China. And they are sending out into the 1040 window a million missionaries this year. A million missionaries this year. And those missionaries are going out with the understanding that they will probably be martyred. They're going to go into Muslim countries. They're going to get jobs. And they're going to open underground churches. They're not going to be paid by any denomination. They're going out by faith in Jesus Christ. And they know they're going to die. And they know their children and their wives will probably die. They'll be executed in these Muslim lands. They're going into the Sudan. They're going into Africa. They'll be going into Saudi Arabia, into Turkey. These precious Asian Christians are moving out in ministry. Well, we in America, we're concerned about, can we keep our jobs? Can we rent our houses? What? What? We're upset because we get uncomfortable. And we don't have everything we want. And we don't have our image of what we ought to have at this stage of our life. You know, I'm 59 years old. I should have my retirement laid aside. I should have a house that I own. I should have gotten this real estate wave so that today I'd have a a bank load of cash. You know, come on, pastor. It's a real world. What? I thought this world and everything in it was going to perish. I thought it was going to pass away. I thought it was going to be burned. I thought we were here to follow Jesus, to seek after his his face, to, to seek after his heart, not to play this American game. See, here's the problem with the pride issue. It comes naturally for us who are Americans. We were born with pride. We were raised in pride. 
We were taught we needed to look a certain way and act a certain way and have certain things. Our children are supposed to look a certain way and behave in a certain way so that we can be proud of them. I think we really have to come back and search our hearts. And say, am I playing a game with Jesus or have I sold out? And I have to tell you, I've been reading Charles Finney. He went to Boston in the year 1843. 1843 was a very difficult time in American religion because there was a great push going on for the second coming of Jesus Christ. There were people called the Millerites who believed that Jesus was coming in 1844, October 22nd. And there was a great stir among the Christians in America. But there was also a a great push among those called Universalists. And the Universalists believed that every person would be saved. Now, we don't have to struggle with universalists today because everybody is basically a universalist, including all of you. We've been raised as universalists. We've been raised to believe that God loves everybody and that everybody's going to get saved. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that people who do not confess the name of Jesus Christ and walk in righteousness and holiness are going to enter into the kingdom of God. I don't believe that people who walk in known sin are going to enter into heaven, regardless of how they say they know Jesus. I believe it's going to be a clean people who will walk into the kingdom of heaven. People who sold out for Jesus and who aren't playing games with him. But here's Mr. Finney coming in to preach in Boston. And and the elders come to him and they say, Our church is in a terrible turmoil because everybody's mind is unsettled. There's waves of doctrine going through this city. This is a very intelligent people They're well-off financially. They're well-schooled, but they're mixed up about religion. So, Mr. Finney, as you come in and start preaching in our church, would you lay again the most basic foundation for salvation? And so Mr. Finney came in and he began to pray. A spirit of prayer came upon him. And he would rise at 4 a.m. and pray until breakfast at 8, crying out before the Lord, saying, bring your spirit and bring revival in the city. But that wasn't all he was doing. He began to recognize that he had to read the scriptures. And so he began to read his Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And he said as he began then to read the scriptures, it was as though the glory of God came. Everything began to light up. The scriptures seemed to beam with light as he would read them. 
And he said a great feeling of unworthiness began to come into his heart. And he began to recognize that there had to be a whole refitting in his spirit with the power of the blood of Jesus. That he couldn't go on the way he was. That if he preached the way he was preaching, there would be no spirit power to convict sinners. He recognized he had to be on his face before God, and he had to weep. And then the Lord said to him the most unkind thing. Will you give me your wife? Will you give me your wife? And he said, I've already given you my wife. The Lord wouldn't change what he said. So he got down on his knees about that and he began to pray. And suddenly his infirm wife, his wife who was sick, began to rise up before his eyes. And he began to have a feeling in his heart. How could he be out here in Boston preaching the word of God and his wife at home sick? How could he be doing this? He needs to be at home taking care of his wife. And the Lord said, will you give her to me? And he found out he couldn't give her up. So he wrote her a letter and he said, I'm having such a hard time giving you up into the hands of Jesus. I'm struggling with giving you up. After writing that letter, she began to pray for him. And he continued to press into the Lord on this issue. Lord, how can I give my wife up? I know she's going to die soon. I haven't had the time with her that I wanted to have. I've been preaching your word. And he began to just cry out and pour out his heart to God. And he said the most glorious thing happened. He said the presence of God came and filled his heart. The presence of God came and filled his heart. And he rose up and began to preach with such power in Boston that revival came. In your pride today, what have you held back from the Lord? What have you held back from the Lord? Are you holding your wife back from the Lord? Are you holding your husband back? Sometimes it almost seems to me that I see some of you men trying to please your wives. Even to the point of denying Jesus. Some of you wives, I see you trying to please your husband. Some of you trying to please your children. Some of you trying to please your boss. Almost to denying Jesus. That's pride. That's pride. See, pride is not 
choosy about where it settles. Pride will find a heart where it can rest anywhere. It's no respecter of persons. Pride wants to come and lodge in our hearts in such a way that we begin to say, look, here's the fence around me. I'll go this far with you, Jesus, but don't ask me to go any further. After all, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I have to get along in this world. I'm the one who must be responsible to provide for my family's welfare. Pride loves that kind of heart to begin to lodge in. Because pride always likes to look good. And caring for my family is always a wonderful thing. Loving my wife is always such a wonderful thing. Which of you would dare fault me for loving my sweetheart? Pride loves to settle in that place. Pride will settle in any place provided that is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If the blood of Jesus Christ is not washing that place clean, Pride will take root and grow like a weed in that place and we'll think it's a flower. We'll think it's a vegetable. We'll think it's a a tomato growing. We'll say, that thing's going to feed me. But it's a weed. See, Hezekiah, came rolling out of revival, faced that great challenge when Sennacherib brought his vast army against the nation of Judah. I mean, he had victories like any of us would want beyond anything else to be able to turn back the armies of the devil and cause them to be cast down. What a wonderful victory. But pride lodged right in the middle of that and grew like a bad weed in his heart until finally selfishness took over and ruled in his spirit, so much so that I wonder if he'll even be in the kingdom of God. That same pride lodged in his son. And only when he was utterly broken and humbled was he willing to turn back to the Lord God of heaven And say, oh God, have mercy on me. And his cry was heard. Now today, if there's unhappiness in your heart, know that pride is blossoming. If there's despair in your heart, know that pride is giving forth its fruit. If there's discouragement in your spirit today, know that pride has cast its seed into your heart. If there's anger and bitterness in your heart, know that pride has left its mark. If there's cynicism 
and skepticism and a holding back from moving fully into what the Lord God of heaven has called you to. Know that pride has cast its seed. Pride was what caused the devil to leave the heavens. Pride was what caused Satan to turn against the living God of heaven and say to himself, I will ascend to the heights and I will be God. It was pride that had a young woman reach out and take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was pride that caused a husband to say, if my wife's going down, I'm going down with her. We'll die together at least. That was pride. What a different story it would be today if Adam had gone quickly to the father, just to the gate of that beautiful garden and began to shout aloud, Lord God of heaven, when you come down, I need to talk to you. Do you think anything in the universe would have kept the Lord God of heaven from rushing to that garden? And if there he had said, look, look what my wife has done. She has eaten of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she's now naked before you. How can I rescue her? And God had said, Adam, are you willing to die for your wife? What a different love story we would have today if Adam had been the sacrifice for his wife. What a wonderful love story. But instead, he said, if my wife's going down, I'm going down with her. And so Jesus came and died for us. That's why he says, you're going to be my bride. Because he died for his bride. Just like Adam could have died for his bride. So I have to stop today and say, what are you doing for those precious ones around you? What are you doing for your wife and your husband and your children? Is there arrogance, pride planted in your heart that has to be rooted out? If you say no, pride has already taken root in you and you're unconscious. All of us have this plant of pride to deal with. It's the single greatest sin in all of our hearts. It can only be broken by the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. only be broken by the blood. We've got to get a new revelation of Jesus. How he died for us. How he loved us. We've got to move back into Jesus and not care what the world has to say about us and not hold back, not have the bitterness in our heart, not have the cynicism, not have the judgment but to step fully into Jesus and let go. Today, are you willing to give yourself into the hand of Jesus and ask him to break the pride in your life? 
take you through to glory? Are you tired of fighting this game of half sold out and half wicked? Almighty God, Almighty God, I cannot conquer this sin of pride in my heart. But I ask by the blood of Jesus that you would conquer it. I ask that you would do whatever is necessary in this fellowship, that we would in fact no longer do business as normal that we would heed your call to come together as a humble body, to walk out before the world the cross of Jesus. Or deal with my pride, with the pride of my brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother and my sister. I'll talk to you soon.